All right. What's up, fam? You guys doing all right tonight? All right. Well, look, my name is Vance. In case you don't know me, my wife is seven months pregnant. She's at, she's at home with our son Noah, and we got another, a little baby girl due in December. She's watching online. Can you guys just say hello to her real quick? We're, we're grateful for you, Pastor Gabrielle, a.k.a. wife. All right. Look, I just wanted to do a quick intro because I feel like we got some, some ground to cover tonight. And I want to just start off with a, with a brief prayer, and then we're going to start navigating it, okay? So, Lord, we thank you that you're here. God, I thank you that you care about every person who's listening right now. And, Lord, you want more for us. You want more. You want us to have more of you. Lord, and you desire to have more of us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would speak truth into our hearts tonight, Lord, and I pray that you would help us to receive your truth. God, that you would help us to see how your truth applies right now in our current circumstances, God, and you would help us navigate how to think. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, so as I just mentioned in prayer, I think it's really important that we understand how to think. I don't know if that's the main thing on your mind right now, but I do know that in the era that we live in, with the amount of information that we have access to, the amount of voices coming at us and the amount of tugging on our emotions and our thoughts that takes place, I think it's more important, I would argue, more important now than it's ever been for us to understand how to think. We're in a, in a world and in an age where everybody's trying to tell us what to think. It's so important that we understand how to think. And the goal of discipleship is to teach you how to think. If you've heard of the disciples, you're, you would be included in that group if you're a believer in Christ. But most of the time when we think of disciples, we think of the, the 12 guys and maybe the 72 or more that followed Jesus around. And the goal when Jesus recruited them was to teach them how to think like he thought. A rabbi in that time would teach his disciples not just what to do, not just how to behave, but how to think. And so everything that Jesus teaches to his disciples and they ultimately share with us is not just a surface level, do this, don't do this. He's giving us a framework for how to think. That's why he doesn't address every single issue that you could ever possibly run into in humanity because he addresses how to think so that when you run into issues, you know how to navigate them. So he doesn't just tell you what to think about every single thing, but he, he gives you enough so that you understand how he thinks about what you're navigating and how you should think about what you're navigating. Why is this important? Again, like I said, we're getting information now more than ever. You have access to more news, more ideas, more philosophies than any other generation in human history. 
You can know what's going on in a person's life right now on the other side of the planet, right now, if they choose to share with you and you can see live what a person is navigating in Pakistan, in Australia, you can hear what they're navigating, what they're going through, and you can hear their thoughts right now. That's never been a reality up until fairly recently in human history. So with that, have you noticed that the more information you have access to, the more confusing things can be sometimes? For instance, there's a conflict taking place in Israel right now. And there are a lot of thoughts. There's a lot of information. There are a lot of ideas. And anytime world situations arise, with it comes a demand for you to have an opinion. And not just for you to have an opinion, but for you to have a passionate opinion, whether it's a well-informed opinion or not. And I felt to address this tonight because I think it's important in our discipleship that we understand how to think. And so the first thing that I want to talk about tonight is not a deep dive into what's taking place in Israel, but how to think in the big picture about Israel. And the first thing that I want to look at is Romans chapter 9, verses 4 through 5. Um, if, you, if you want to understand the New Testament, New Covenant perspective on Israel, go read Romans chapters 9 through 11. Paul gives a very clear uh, explanation as to where God stands when it comes to the nation of Israel. And I just want to dive into a couple little chunks tonight. Uh, verses 4 through 5 in Romans chapter 9 says this. They are Israelites. Paul is talking about his fellow people. And he, and he starts this chapter by saying I have anguish in my heart relating to the fact that they have not followed Christ. And he says, but to be clear, they are Israelites and to them belong the adoption. In, in Exodus, God calls Israel his firstborn son. He says to Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my firstborn son go so that he may worship me. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, meaning that God actually dwelt with them in the tabernacle uh, in, in the temple, he actually had his physical presence on earth with the people of Israel. The covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises, the ancestors are theirs. And from them, by physical descent, came the Christ, who is God over all, praised forever. Amen. What Paul is illustrating here is that Israel has a special place in the story of God and a special place in the family of God. And I think it's important for us to understand this. And he's, he's going to go on to explain how the believer who is not uh, an Israelite or Israeli should think about the people of Israel. And he, he, he equates it to uh, branches and a tree. But I want to make a quick ana analogy that might resonate with you a little bit more if you don't understand agriculture. Okay, so imagine that... Uh, you have a father and a mother, and they have a child. They naturally give birth to a son. And then that son chooses to leave the family and reject the father and mother. 
And when the, when the son chooses to leave, they choose to adopt other kids. And so the son has left and now they adopt other kids. And now they have a family where they have adopted children and they also have a natural born child, a biological child who is estranged from them. These adopted children, what should be their perspective? I want you to think about this. If the adopted children say, well, we're the family now, and they turn their hearts against the biological child, um, I don't think that's really the best way to go about it. Because if, if you understand, does anybody have children in here? I know not many of us. Okay, does anybody have a parent? Okay, you were, somebody gave birth to you. Um, so there is a special connection and bond between a child and a parent, especially when that parent gives birth to the child. And even if the two are estranged, even if the two don't agree, even if the two have tension and they're not really feeling each other in a moment, they still don't really play about each other. You know what I mean? Like, for me, there's, there's never going to be a time where um, I just cast off my son and want nothing to do with him. Even if there comes a point in our relationship where there's tension and there's disagreement, there's still going to be a level of, even if I have a problem with him, you can't have a problem with him. <laughs> Does anybody follow what I'm saying? That there's a, I don't know, do you have any friends like that? Do you have any siblings? Like, is, anybody, is anybody like that about their family? That like, even if, even if I have a problem with them, you can't have a problem with them because then you have a problem with me. That's how God is about his people, all of us. And so the, the, the adopted children, the, the proper heart posture for the adopted children to have is gratitude that they've been adopted into the family a full sense of belonging in the family, but also a desire for reconciliation between the biological child and the biological parents, because it's only right. They wouldn't wanna see reconciliation and restoration. And so it would, it would especially be pleasing to that parent um, for the adopted children to have the heart posture of desire to see that, re that, re that relationship reconciled in the same way God started his covenant with human beings with Israel. He started with a man named Abraham. Abraham gave birth to Isaac. Isaac gave birth to Jacob. And God changed Jacob's name to Israel. And there was a nation birthed from them. And through that people, God established the very word that you and I have the privilege of reading. God established and then sent a savior through their lineage. He says that literally by genetics, the Christ came through the people of Israel. But what ultimately happened is this right here, Romans 11, verses 25 through 29. He says this after explaining a long history of, of, of God and Israel. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you will not be conceited just because you've been adopted. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has, has come in, meaning until everybody else gets adopted, there's a partial hardening, hardening, but it says that it's a mystery, that you're not really gonna understand it or why God has done it, but it says that he's partially hardened 
the people of Israel and given them a lack of understanding of who Jesus really is until you and I fully step into the family. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So he says this, regarding the gospel, they are enemies for your advantage. They are enemies to the gospel of Jesus for your advantage. But regarding election, being chosen by God, they are loved because of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the fathers of the faith, since God's gracious gifts and calling are irrevocable. So where does this put you? This puts you in a position where you do not need to be a geopolitical expert. You do not need to understand uh, the tactics of the military, what to do with all of our nation's resources. You do not need to necessarily understand what takes place at a pay grade that is above your own. That is the purpose of, listen to me, that is the purpose of leadership. This is why it should be important to us who we choose to place in leadership to make decisions based on access information they have access to that we don't, okay? But what you do need to understand is from a spiritual standpoint that God has chosen a particular group of people from early on and established a relationship with them and, t- and said to Abraham that through you, all nations of the earth will be blessed. God's plan was not just to exalt a people group or make them better than other people. They are still equal with other people. And ultimately in the body of Christ, we're all equal. He says that he's not a respecter of persons. He says clearly in the New Testament that there is no Jew, there is no Gentile, there is no male, there is no female. There is no separation in Christ meaning that there is no lack of equality and God does not love one more than the other. However, there is a plan that God has taking place. And as we discussed last week, we talked last week about the war in your heart. And and one of the things that I mentioned was this, that God and Satan war against one another. And more than anything, Satan wars against God because God is in control of everything. So Satan wars against God And we said that this, that the battleground is the life of a human being, that Satan wars against God through the life of a man. And Satan wars against God through your heart, tempting you, trying to get you to step into pride and arrogance and self-reliance so that you will step away from God. And in the same way, that Satan is warring against the plan of God, the land of God. There's a demonic attack against Israel, against who they are, against the land. That's why there's such crazy religious tension. There's such, there, there have been wars over this land and there's still an, there's an immense level of tension that you and I, if we're not over there, we don't even really understand. Seriously, like it's, it's out because again, you and I, we're, we're, we have access to information because of technology, but that doesn't mean we really know what's going on. And so there needs to be a level of humility that says, you know what? I don't understand everything, but I do care about God's story, God's narrative, God's kingdom. And what I do know is that at the end of the book, at the end of the Bible, John sees this. He sees a new city coming down 
out of heaven to establish the reign of Christ. And does anybody know what that city is called? The new Jerusalem, not the new Miami, not the new New York, not the new Atlanta, but the new Jerusalem. So clearly this land has a spiritual significance, meaning there are spiritual battles taking place that are really above your level of understanding. However, they can be impacted by your spiritual practices like prayer. So what we want to do is we want to pray for the kingdom of God to come. We want to pray for God to fulfill his plan. He says that he's planning for Israel to be saved. And here's, here's, here's just a, a tidbit of information. One of the most significant attacks that's coming against people right now is deception. And Jesus says this, that in the end, he says, be careful that you are not deceived. And how deception works is you are convinced of something that's not true. But you think it's true and you think it's good. That's deception. That's what it is. You don't think it's bad. You don't think it's a bad idea. And then you buy into it. You think it's real. You think it's true. You think it's good. And so you believe it, but it's not true. And it's not good. And it's not God. And so it's so important that we understand how to think in this time. And what I can say from a 30,000 foot point of view, not knowing any of the current events that are taking place. If I just look through the lens of the Bible, I will say this. What I never want to do is be the person who is anti-Israel. Because I cannot find a scripture where God places favor on that person ever. Even when Israel blatantly turns away from God, we see that in the Old Testament. We see that in their story. They rebel against God. They do heinous stuff. They do the wrong thing. He never approves of somebody opposing them. So the, the right heart posture in the Old Testament is, God, they're wild and I pray for them. And the right posture in the New Testament is the same, that God desires for all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And you and I, we do not need to be engaged in every debate. You do not need to be an expert on every topic. And please, please, please resist this narrative in the world that is trying to get you to prop yourself up as an expert on things you're not an expert on. And we have to humble ourselves. We have to. We'll watch an hour-long YouTube video and think we're an expert on stuff. That's really happening. We are, we are willing to, and, and I'm shifting gears now, um, away from just Israel, and I'm talking about just information, even when it comes to the word of God. So many of us will hear a 60-second TikTok and be ready to throw away 2,000 years of legitimizing of scripture. Somebody tells you, the Bible's made up on TikTok. 
on Instagram and it's challenging your trust. 2,000 years, I, scholars, scholars debating this stuff. And there are people on social media giving you information that even atheist professors would not agree with. That Jesus didn't exist. No person who's actually studied it would agree with that. But look at how dangerous this age is, that people could just tell us anything. And if they say it in the right way, and if they throw some slick lines in there and act like they have proof, we'll just believe it. And we're falling away. So please, be cautious. And so this brings us back into the same concept we were talking about last week, which is the war in your heart and humility and pride. And this is a different angle, but I feel a weight on this because it's so important that we grasp this. I feel a heaviness behind this concept because it means everything for how we actually do life. It means everything about whether we walk in purpose or not, about whether we walk close with God, about whether we last till the end. Scripture makes it clear that we're supposed to finish the race. Jesus said to those who endure, to those who persevere, to those who finish, I will reward. So it's so important that we're not dragged off course by lies and deception. And one of the most important ways that we will win the war in our heart is through humility. And so tonight I wanna talk about, last week I talked about the war in your heart, just kind of prefacing it. Tonight I wanna talk about how to win the war in your heart. And, amen. And I wanna go to the, um, a few verses later in Romans 11. After, after Paul gives 11 chapters of humanity, um, judgment, faith, being justified apart from the law and being justified by faith, God adopting us, being dead to sin, being baptized, uh, be, having the spirit of God dwelling in us and being led by the spirit of God. Those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. And then he gives this whole explanation on where Israel is in the whole picture and how we're to view them. He then says this in verses 33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments, and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? And who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. He sums it up. Amen. But he sums up everything that he explains about what we are to believe about God by saying that God's plans can't really be understood by us. And I would say that a foundational component to beginning to understand God's plan is understanding that you can't understand God's plan. That when you get to the place of feeling you've got God pinned down, 
and you understand everything about him and you understand the components of his plan, you're further away than you realize. Because Paul, he's the one who's writing this. Clearly he understands something because he's teaching us. And then he says that the, that the wisdom and the knowledge of God are so deep that his ways are untraceable. Like you can't really figure out what he's doing. The wisdom and the knowledge of God, they're depth, they're deep and they're rich. You see the posture of humility that Paul has. Even with the knowledge that he does have, the knowledge that he does have leads him to, un- to truly understanding how little knowledge he has. The more you get to know God, truly, the more you realize how much you don't know about God. The closer you get to God, the more you get a glimpse of really how great and how grand and how glorious he is and how little you really know and understand. And it starts to put you in your proper position your proper position. And what we're navigating right now in this age and era of time is more temptation than ever to be out of our proper position. And pride, I think, is more dangerous now than ever because we have so many reasons that we can feel to be prideful. There are, I mean, I just see it non-stop. The more access we have to information, whether it's true or not, puffs us up. But the word says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you were here this past Sunday, John Bevere was here and blew the lid off the church with a message about the fear of God. And, but, but look at this, that the word says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that's reflected right here in this passage that, that this is fear of God. This is Paul saying that God's judgments are unsearchable. His ways are untraceable. Who has known his mind? Who could counsel him? Who's ever given him anything that he should be repaid? There's a, there's a fear, there's an awe, there's a respect of God. And that is where true wisdom begins. And after that declaration of how great God is, of how grand God is, of how unsearchable he is, of the fact that we can't counsel him, the fact that we can't really understand that, after the declaration there's then an invitation immediately following him saying, amen. The next chapter starts and says this, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. So after explaining that we can't understand God's plan, 
we're then invited into how to understand God's plan. How unsearchable are his judgments? How untraceable are his ways? Therefore, present yourselves as a living sacrifice. This is your true worship. And don't be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, the changing of the way that you think, so that you may be able to discern what the will of God is. You can be able to actually discern what the plans of God are when you start with humility. So how to win the war in your heart. Number one is present yourself to God. Present yourself to God. It says, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. And I would say this, that presenting your body as a living sacrifice is one of the most humble things that you could do. It is an, it's the ultimate act of humility and worship. But presenting your body doesn't just start with your body. What controls your body? Your mind. Somebody said your heart. Bible would equate the two, your mind and your heart. So presenting your body as a sacrifice begins with deciding in your mind to be a sacrifice. Presenting your body as a living sacrifice begins with deciding in your mind to be a sacrifice. This is why it's the ultimate act of humility and worship because it takes me humbling myself. I have to think less of myself than I think of God in order to present myself as a sacrifice to him. But if I think more of myself than I think of God, then I'll never sacrifice myself for him. I have to think more of him. I have to view who he is and what he has as more valuable than who I am and what I have. That's, that's the heart behind a sacrifice. Even in, the, even in the sacrificial system, they were taking the best of what they had and bringing it to God. Why? It's, it's a sign. It's communicating, God, you are worth more than the best that I have. And it's an act of faith saying, I'm willing to sacrifice and give you what's most valuable to me so that I can receive what's most valuable to you. This is so important because God doesn't just leave us at our salvation decision. The salvation decision, the decision to follow Christ, to receive the justification of God, that, that Jesus paid the price for our sins on a cross so that we could be forgiven by God and, and our sins could be atoned for. When we receive that, that opens the door for us to step into 
the life of God. And when we step into new life, this is the process that we have to receive what God has, that we do not have life in and of ourselves. Jesus says that you have to remain in him. And apart from him, you can do nothing. We do not draw our life from ourselves. We draw it from him. This is why we give ourselves up because we don't have anything to offer. And I know that that's a very unique point of view in the age of time that we live in, but I want you to understand how God really thinks and what he's really responding to. That there's such a sneaky way that the enemy tries to craftily get into our lives, into our thinking, into our minds. And if we're not careful, if we're not intentional about this process, then we are going to be conformed to the patterns of this world. We're just going to align with what everybody else does if we don't follow this process that starts with presenting ourselves. How are you doing with presenting yourself to God? For me, it's my lifeline. It's, it's, it's all I got. Presenting myself to God is, is the greatest gift because God doesn't have to see me if he doesn't want to. It, like the, Me being able to present myself to God is a gift. I want you to think about this in, in, in ancient terms, right? Because we, we read many ancient texts that draw ancient analogies and we see a king and a kingdom. And when you are part of a kingdom, you understand a little bit more how a king operates and to enter the presence of a king doesn't, it, not everybody just has access to that. You don't just walk up in the king's presence. We even see in the book of Esther that she couldn't, as his wife, as the king's wife, she couldn't just go before the king that if she went without being asked, she would get killed. So she took a step of faith to go before the king and to not get killed. So I want you to think about the fact that Jesus calls himself a king and he calls what God is operating in a kingdom. And then John says that we can boldly approach the throne of grace to obtain mercy in the time of need. This is a gift. To present yourself before the king is a gift. Prior to Jesus, you could not present yourself. God would not see you. You can't just come in his presence with sin and mess. There was, a, there was a process in just about every kingdom that I'm aware of, there was a process for how you would even present yourself to the king. When we see Joseph be brought out of the prison, even in Egypt, to go see Pharaoh, he couldn't just go with them dungeon clothes and those dungeon, the dungeon dirt. He couldn't go with his unshaved face and unkempt hair. He had to get cleaned up before he could go. And that was just with Pharaoh. How much more might God care about how we enter his presence? And so what he did was he sent his son to do the cleaning up that we could never do because you could never actually clean yourself up enough to go into the presence of God. And so Jesus came and said, I know they can't do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to put on human flesh and I'm going to pay the price so that they could be clean, so that they could be in the presence of the father 
like I am. And then where I am, they're going to be with me. He says to the disciples, where I go, you're going to come with me. I'm going into the presence of God. This is a gift. And the reality is the kingdom of God is both approaching, it's both coming, it's both in the future, and it's now. It's near. It's already here. We see it in the fact that he's already depositing his spirit into his people. He's already changing us and transforming us and healing us. This is what we're being invited into here, that you have the gift of the Holy Spirit, that God could have could have just stayed in heaven and left you down here to do what you do. But you have the opportunity to go before the God of the universe and to say, I present myself because you're worthy of it all. And I receive your gift of cleansing, of sanctification. That's a big word for just the process of how God changes us, transforms us, and conforms us into his image once we are in Christ through faith. And so presenting yourself is where the transformation starts. And many of us, we do not have a habit of this, and so we are behind in our maturation. And when you do not have a habit of presenting yourself God's not going to come kick down your door to talk to you about what you have going on in life. And this is how you can, if you're not careful, for the next 50 years, stay with the same mindset that you have right now. Because you have to present yourself to be transformed. Jesus came and took your sin payment for you, but he will not take your sanctification for you. You have to go through that. So Jesus paid the price for your sins but he didn't change your mind automatically. You have to present yourself. That's how it works. And he's inviting you, present yourself, present your body as a living sacrifice. That looks like God, I'm giving myself to you. So you tell me what to do. And when we have a habit of that, that is where things really start to change. And so you present yourself to God. Then what do you do? You examine yourself. Examine yourself. It says this, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You got to know which side of this you're on. And the only way you know which one you're doing is by examining yourself. He says, do not be conformed. That means that that's a result of your own actions and your own will. Do not means you're in control of it. That means your decisions, your choices have to follow one pattern or another. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. If this were not within your control, it would not be a command. It would say, you're not conformed to the pattern of this world. You are transformed by the renewing of your mind. But it doesn't say that. It says, do not, meaning this is about your actions. And self-examination is a very key aspect of our discipleship. And so the quality 
of our self-examination is of the utmost importance. How good are you at examining what you have going on? I would say this is not an art that's taught very often to us when we are discipling under Jesus, but it's, it's so important and it explains so much about where things go left. Lack of self-examination is the root of a lot of issues with our discipleship. It's the root of a lot of our struggles with sin, a lot of our wrong perspectives, a lot of deception that we can go into when we're not having honest self-examination. When we're not having honest self-examination, we just become reactive. And if you're not examining yourself, then you're not really leading your life the way that you need to be. It means you're just kind of reacting to whatever stimulates you in the moment. And so whatever's coming at you, you're just reacting. But to present your body as a living sacrifice takes intentionality. It takes, okay, God, I have choices as to what I do with my life, with my body, where I go, how I respond. And so I'm going to intentionally decide that I'm sacrificing my own self-leadership and self-reliance for your leadership and relying on you. I'm doing that intentionally and consciously. I'm presenting myself to you. And then as I commune with you, I invite you to examine me and I examine myself as well. How am I doing? When, when somebody comes at me with a sideways comment, I have to examine how would Jesus respond and how am I tempted to respond? That is not going to happen for you. When you are tempted, really in just about any area that I can think of, you have a choice to make. And if you are not willing to have an honest examination of yourself, you're not gonna be free. For instance, if you have a struggle with sexual sin, if you are not honestly examining what you have going on, what you're consuming, what's triggering you, what you're responding to, how are you going to get free? So then we come to church and we ask God, free me, deliver me, but we won't look at ourselves and honestly look at what's on the table in front of us. Because the, the way that the sanctification process, the cleansing process, the changing process really works is I step up to a table with God and I invite him, let's take a look at what I have going on. Help me navigate this. And many times we're waiting on God to drag us to the table. You have to go sit, you gotta present yourself. And it will do you so much good and it, the reason that I feel such a weight behind this is because I know what happens when we don't. 
That's where we really get caught up. If you do not examine yourself, it's so dangerous. You can't have healthy relationships if you don't examine you. The natural thing to do is examine everybody else. So some of us, we get really good at examining other people and terrible at examining ourselves. And again, like I said last week, then you'll struggle to hear the voice of God because God is not coming to the gossip table. God's coming to the self-examination table. And then if you want to talk about some other people, we can get to that after we talk about you. That's how he works. But so often we want to just bring our observations about other people to God and expect him to talk about it. Or we bring our plans to God and we just want him to talk about the plans when sometimes he may want to talk about why we made those plans. But that takes a self-aware and a transparent individual to say, you know what, God? I'm going to start with the fact that I made a plan. Before I bring you the plan, I'm going to start with the fact that I made one. And so we're going to put this plan-making mindset that I have on the table to examine it. Why am I making this plan? Why do I think this way? Why do I want this? God, help me to navigate this. That's where you'll hear the voice of God. So how do I examine myself? One, you want to have a practice of continual reflection. A practice of continual reflection. This is... This is opposed, and I would say constantly attacked by the temptation to always be distracted and to always be entertained. I've talked about this before, but regardless of how you feel about about entertainment, let's just talk about what it is. Let's talk about what it is. Entertainment. Entertainment is anything that's created to hold your attention. That is the root of entertainment. It's created to hold your attention. Many of us, we don't look at it that way, but it it is calling you to make an exchange. And in the same way that you and I are called to present our bodies to God, entertainment is calling us to present our bodies to it. So come present yourself to these eight episodes. Come present yourself to this trilogy. Come present yourself to this album. Come present yourself to this podcast. Come present yourself to this book. Whatever it is, it's not evil in and of itself, but we have to understand what it is that we're doing when we engage with it to understand whether the entertainment we're engaging with is healthy or not. And when you are constantly being entertained, it's hard to reflect. Because reflection takes an environment that's conducive for it. And I can't really honestly reflect when I'm on the go all the time, when I've just got thoughts bouncing in and out of my mind, 
when I'm watching a movie, when I'm listening to music, I don't view that as quality reflection. In fact, there's, a, there's an ancient, ancient thing that we still have access to this day. It's called silence. And you may have, maybe you've never heard of it. I know you don't see it a lot now, but it's this thing. See, y'all can't even do it. Y'all started talking right then. I heard laughs. I heard voices. Let's try it. Some of you guys are on the edge of your seat and you just can't wait for it to be over. But can I tell you that that is a space where God dwells. You wanna hear the voice of God, start getting in some silence. Start reflecting. Amen, somebody got it. <laughs> start reflecting. Have a practice of reflection. And can I tell you, that's where your discipleship will happen. That's where you will start making wise decisions because you're thinking about your decisions. And the world that you live in moves at a pace where nobody encourages you to think about your decisions. They're just trying to tell you the decisions to make. But in order to be like Jesus, you have to have the habits of Jesus. It's his habits that led to his mindset, that led to his lifestyle. And what we see with Jesus is a habit of pulling away and spending time with God. That's what the disciples said was his habit, that he would draw away by himself to pray over on a mountain somewhere. And can I tell you, he didn't have a Spotify playlist? He didn't. I'm not saying that it's bad. I'm just saying he didn't need one. He didn't have a devotional with him. He was out in silence, communing with the Father. And you and I, we don't even have to be outside. We can be, but we can access our Father in a place of reflection and silence and get so much quality leadership in that space. And so we want to have a habit of reflection. I would encourage you that that would be your constant mindset. And can I say, it, it's not just in silence. I think the silence is important, but it's not just there. Reflection is something that will almost start coming naturally to you as you make it a habit, where you, you start thinking a few layers deep in conversations that you're having and things that you observe. Why is this happening? If you endeavor to do ministry, if you endeavor to do this, what I do, it takes a lot of reflection. I don't just read the Bible real quick and get up here and just talk about it. I reflect on what we have going on, on, on the things that we're doing, the things that we're focused on, why we're doing the things that we're doing. Reflection. And if you ever wanna come up with an original idea, you're gonna have to step into a space of reflection. That's where creativity takes place. That's where originality takes place. And I've said this before, I feel like one of the uh, huge issues in 
Christianity right now is just a lack of originality because we're not taking the time to actually commune with God. And because there have been so many things that have been done, that have been said, many of us are satisfied with just a copy of what somebody else did. Where God has birthed you as an original human being, and there is some, he's given you a particular perspective, particular experiences, particularly, particular giftings. There's a way that he's wired you for something original to come from you. But it will never happen if you do not have a habit of reflection. So we want to have a, a, a habit, a practice of continual reflection. Next is we want to read the Bible with self-examination in mind. So why you're reading the Bible, how you're reading the Bible is important. Are you letting the Bible read you? That's where you start getting life out of what you're reading. And the first thing that I'll tell you is if you do not have the spirit of God, you cannot really access the wisdom of God. And so the world looks at the Bible and can't get anything from it. They can get texts, they can get ideas, they can get suggestions. They can say, oh, well, that's kind of like this other moral law over here. That's kind of you know, similar to these other texts that I've seen. It's all kind of the same. And it is to you because you don't have access to the spirit of God that's, that uses the word of God to speak to the spirit of man and to transform the mind, to transform the soul. God uses his word to transform us when we are found in him. This is why the process is so important. You believe in Jesus. Jesus opens the door for you to the Father and they send the spirit to dwell with you right now. And the spirit leads you and guides you and transforms you. He leads you into all truth. He reminds you of the things that Jesus has taught. He is the one who is actually leading you and shepherding you and guiding you through your daily interactions. And if you will have a practice of reflection, you'll start hearing him more because that's where he starts speaking. As you're reflecting, he starts giving you wisdom in your reflection that you would not have otherwise. I could talk about this all night. I won't though. So you want to read the Bible with self-examination in mind. Holy Spirit, speak to me. Speak to me. I, I heard um, in, in one of the questions that we got a few weeks ago, one of you guys said that ever since you got baptized, people have been trying to convince you that Jesus is not God. And, you know, what do you do? And, um, and after that, I don't know if you noticed, but we, we talked about Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, and I even broke down where scripture is saying that Jesus is God. But aside from that, you, when you make an honest step into relationship with God and you honestly believe in Jesus. The Bible tells us that nobody can say Jesus is Lord without the spirit of God and not talking about being able to say the words. Anybody can say the words, but actually believe those words. That's a result of the work of the spirit of God in you. And so if he has brought you to life, opened your eyes where you are able to see the truth of the gospel and the truth of who Jesus is, then he's also inviting you into this process. And if you will present yourself and say, God, I'm struggling with doubt. That's what I have going on today. And so I'm presenting myself to you. People are trying to come all against my theology. They're trying to attack my decision. Would you help me? Would you lead me? Would you guide me? And as you present yourself, 
allow the self-examination process to take place and even ask him to lead you in the word. Have some accountability around you, which is the next step. Invite godly feedback into your life. Have some people around you who know some things. Get in a small group, get in a Bible study, take some actions of your own to put yourself in position to hear from God, to not just sit in doubt, to not just sit in your struggle, but to say, okay, I've got doubt, I've got struggle, now let me present myself, let me examine myself, and that's where I expect God to start speaking. And when you're doing these things regularly, God will have plenty of space to develop you and disciple you. Many of us are we're concerned with our purpose. We're concerned with what we're called to do. And can I tell you, all those things will be a natural outflow of you doing this. You will walk around with much less confusion when you have a regular practice of knowing God and inviting God to know you and help you to know yourself. So you wanna ask yourself, am I being conformed to this age? Am I being conformed to the patterns of this world? Or am I being transformed by the renewing of my mind? That's a question that you can answer for yourself. And if the reality in your daily life is, I'm being shaped by the world, Meaning, when the world says something, they get my attention and they shift how I feel. They shift what I think. They shake me up. I'm trying to look like them, think like them, be like them, be accepted by them. That's being conformed by them. And God is inviting you into a higher way of living life to be like him, to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, to think to start to think in a way that you would never be able to think without him. The gift of divine wisdom, divine insight, divine character, divine integrity. Can I tell you that integrity, character, all these things will never come without honest self-examination. To be integrous, to have integrity just means to be whole. It means that you're the same everywhere. That takes honest self-examination. That takes me asking, hey, am I the same here as I was three hours ago? Am I the same outside of church as I am inside church? Am I the same with my family as I am my friends? Am I the same with this group of friends as I am with this group of friends? Am I operating in integrity? That takes self-examination. And one of the issues that many of us run into is when, when we get honest with self-examination, then we start buying into condemnation and that's not God's goal. For you to have an honest look at yourself and see where you're messing up is not to be condemned. It's an, it's an invitation for God to do his work. Because God already knows what you have going on. The issue is you don't. So he gives you the gift of being able to see yourself for what you really are and who you really are. And then he gives you the gift of him getting involved in your life for him to create, to form you into who he created you to be. But you will never be who you were created to be without an honest examination of who you are. And you'll never be able to track the progress if you don't know what you actually have going on. Amen? All right. So you want to present yourself to God. You want to examine yourself. And then the last thing, you want to pursue holiness. 
pursue holiness. You want to win the war in your heart, this war against humility and pride. You want to win this war? It takes place with what you're pursuing. Hebrews 12, 14 says this, pursue peace with everyone and holiness. Without it, no one will see the Lord. And I went back and forth about where to, where to land with this. But as I was praying last night, I heard this phrase in my mind that I believe was God because I, I really had to pray to even make sense of it. Uh, but it was this. It was, without, it was before I read this scripture. It was, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And without humility, no one will see themselves. And so without holiness, you'll never see God. I mean, that's a statement all in itself. Without humility, you'll never actually see yourself. It takes humility. It takes me presenting myself, me saying, you know, I don't know everything. You know, maybe I may have some things going on. Maybe I have some room for improvement. And the, the more you get an accurate view of yourself, you'll see I have a lot of room for improvement. And humility invites us into actually seeing ourselves. But the point I want to land on here is that we pursue holiness as a result of honestly seeing ourselves. And and I wanted to particularly bring this passage because it makes it clear that holiness is not something we experience passively. It's something we pursue diligently. Holiness is not something you're going to just passively experience. There's a positional righteousness that we talked about a few weeks ago where where Jesus has paid the price for your sins. You're forgiven. You're made righteous. You're made holy before God. And your spirit is renewed. You're born again. But then what about the decisions you're making the next day? God wants to get involved in the holiness of those, in the way that you think, in the way that you view people, and ultimately in the way that you love. That's ultimately where all this is coming down to. Jesus says that all of his laws, all of the regulations, all of the rules can be summed up in this. Love the Lord your God with everything in you and love your neighbor as yourself. It's all summed up in love. And to pursue holiness really means to pursue the highest level of love. And that without God, you cannot love, but with God, you can. God is love, but it's something to be pursued. And when we are presenting ourselves to God, examining ourselves and pursuing holiness, and to be holy just means to be set apart. It ultimately means to be like God. That's what it means in, his, in this context, that God is holy and he calls us to be holy as he is holy. It means that he wants our nature to be like his. He wants our character to be like his. He wants our mind to be like his. He wants our conversation to be like his. He wants everything we do to be like how he would do it. That's what pursuing holiness is. It's not these outward forms of religion that, it, that it's become in many of our minds. That when we hear the word holiness, it sounds like this churchy word. Holiness is about being like God, having the nature, the love of God ultimately. And it's something that we are to pursue. He says, pursue 
peace with everyone and holiness. And without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And I would say that that is a end time reality and an end time reality. So that without holiness, you're not gonna be in heaven. Without holiness, you're not gonna experience God now. And that is the honest reality of what many of us may experience. Why am I not experiencing God? Why am I not hearing the voice of God? Are you, are you examining this honestly? Are you presenting yourself to God? Refusing to be conformed to the patterns of this world and inviting him to transform you by the renewing of your mind. If so, then you'll be experiencing him. Now, how you experience God, we, that's a whole another discussion, it's not necessarily going to be in some of the ways that you see people experience God on Instagram. However, you will experience the reality of the presence of God in the transformation of your character, in the changing of the way that you think. That's where he really gets involved. And so this doesn't mean that we're working to be saved. Jesus did the work. We received the work that Jesus did. And now we work because we are saved. We do the work that God calls us into doing. It's not something that, where we just live passively. I heard it put this way earlier. Um, Dallas Willard said that apart from God, you can do nothing. But if you're doing nothing, it's apart from God. Meaning, you can't really do anything of significance apart from Jesus. He says that. But if you're doing nothing at all, you're definitely not doing that with Jesus. Jesus is not having you do nothing at all. That's not the life of Jesus. If we look at the life of Jesus, if you just look at the life of Jesus, he was not a man who did nothing. He was constantly about his father's business. And you are to be as well. But in order to do any outward business, you have to honestly do inward business. And if you're gonna serve God outwardly, it's most important that you're serving him inwardly because that's what he cares about. And that's where ultimately the greatest attacks are coming against you is internally, but that's also where the greatest strength is coming to you, where God's grace is coming to you, where God's power is coming to you. Sometimes we want God's power to show up in our bank account when it's showing up in our heart. Can I be real? That we want, we want God's power to always be an outward manifestation, but the, most, the, the greatest gift that he gives us is the inward manifestation of his power, that he actually changes us, that he changes our witness to the world. He's called you to be a witness to the world, a witness of what? Of what he's done in your life. Amen? Amen. All right, so we're gonna close here. And I want you guys to actually stand to your feet. It says this, Romans 12, where we started, verses one through three. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. 
do not be conformed to this age or to the patterns of this world, another translation says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing and perfect will of God. For by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Instead, think sensibly as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. I felt such a weight behind this message because I feel the potential of a trajectory shift for God's people in understanding what we're talking about here. If you make a regular practice of presenting yourself to God, examining yourself in his presence and inviting him to examine you as well, and pursuing holiness as a result, which is ultimately about obeying what he shows you, obeying his commands. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. It's as simple as that. Not that you're, you're gonna do it perfectly. That's the whole purpose of presenting yourself and examining yourself because he's going to perfect you. He says that he who began a good work in you is faithful to see it through to completion, meaning it doesn't start completed, but it starts. And you're gonna go through a process. And so I don't know where you're at tonight. I don't know where you are in this process. Some of you guys, maybe you have not started this process. Maybe you have never presented yourself to God. And I would pray that there are some people in here and I would hope that there are some people in here who have never presented themselves to God because what that says to me is somebody around you who has presented themselves to God and who has experienced the love of God and who has experienced the transformation of God prayerfully got you here, prayerfully invited you here, invited you into what they have experienced from the living God. And if, if that's you today, if, if you have not had a relationship with Jesus, you're in the right place. If you're watching online, you're in the right place because the Bible tells us that it is by faith that you're saved. And if God has stirred faith in your heart today to believe that Jesus is truly the one, that he is truly the Messiah, that he is truly the savior, that something in you resonates with that and you've sensed God drawing you into relationship with him, it, there's, there's no words that I can really put to that feeling. There's nothing that I can really do to describe that experience, but you just know. It's like, it's like choosing a spouse. When you know, you know. If God is drawing you, you know he's drawing you. And if that's you today, and you're wanting to make a firm decision to say, yes, I wanna follow Jesus, I wanna step into relationship with him. I wanna experience the abundant life that he has for me. I just want you to lift your hand in the air. Boldly, boldly, boldly. I see hands going up, boldly, boldly. Come on. God loves you. He loves you. He loves you. He's drawn you to himself. You're making the most important decision that you could ever make. This is, this is everything. This is everything. This is, this is what we are looking for in life. 
this experience right here that's been summarized in three points is ultimately what you need to be able to live the abundant life that God created you for. Just relationship with him. He'll speak to you. He'll guide you. He'll lead you. He says that he'll lead you along paths of righteousness for his name's sake. If that's you today, if, if you had your hand up, I want you to pray this prayer with me. And, and all, all the believers, we're gonna get to you. I'm gonna pray for y'all right after, but we're gonna invite some guests into that prayer first. And so if that was you, if you made a decision, I want you to pray this prayer with me. And I want all the believers around the room to pray this as well, along with you. Say, Jesus, I believe in you. I believe you're the one, the true living God. I believe you paid the price for my sins so that I don't have to pay it. I believe you died and rose again. I believe you're alive right now, welcoming me. And so I say yes to your invitation into a new life. I repent and I turn away from my sins and everything in my life that has not been from you or for you. And I turn completely to you. I acknowledge you as Lord, Master, and Father. I accept your invitation into your family and into new life in Jesus' name. I feel the spirit of God in here. Um, if, if you're watching online, if you're in here and God has been stirring something in you tonight, I, I feel like God is stirring a hunger in some of us. And one of the things that I've been thinking about this week as it regards hunger is you can't manufacture hunger. You're either hungry or you're not. But you know when you're hungry. If you're full, you're full. And food might look good, but you're not hungry. But if there's a hunger in you, if there's a need in you, if there's a desire in you that has been stirring as we're talking that you can't even fully put your finger on, I believe that God is inviting you, speaking to you about this process. And so I wanna pray a brief prayer over you and then I want us to step into a time of worship and worship as in presenting ourselves. He says, present yourselves as a living sacrifice. This is your true worship. Lifting our hands, singing a song, giving glory to God is just an expression of us orienting our lives around him, of us giving ourselves to him, giving our lives to him, and saying, God, I'm hungry and you're the only one who can feed me. I've tried some other meals and they will not satisfy. I acknowledge that. And so I give myself to you. I give the glory to you. I give my life to you. And so I wanna pray. 
Lord, I thank you for your transformation. God, I believe that you have done something special tonight, God, that I can't even really define. I just believe that you have done something special in the lives of many people tonight. God, I thank you for a transformation of their relationship with you, God, of how they interact with you, of of how they engage with you. God, I pray that this would just be a seed that bears much fruit. God, that, that they would understand that in this message, they got a glimpse of what the tree could look like. But over the course of what they're about to step into, they're going to experience the cultivation of it and truly experience the fruit of it over time. And so Lord, I pray for commitment to the process in your people. God, I pray that we would not be a group of people who are flaky with you, God, who are not committed to you, God. Lord, I pray that we would be a holy, set apart, unique, different group of people because we endure, because we stick with you, because we believe what you said. We believe who you are, God, and we are willing to give our lives for it. So if you'll just, if you'll lift your hands, if you're in agreement with what I'm saying, Lord, you see every hand lifted in this place. Lord, I pray for your Holy Spirit to make a significant impact and impression in the minds and in the hearts of every person who's willing. God, I pray that we would start hearing your voice at another level as we step into this process. God, I pray for a special revelation, a spirit of revelation and wisdom to come upon your people, Lord, as they engage with you, God, knowing that as we draw near to you, you will draw near to us. God, I pray that as we open your word with self-examination in mind, God, that you will bring it to life, Lord, that we will be able to see the life in the pages of scripture, God, that we will be able to see the treasure that you've given us. And Lord, I pray that we would truly live lives in which we store up treasures for ourselves in heaven and not on earth, and that we would truly see you as our treasure. So God, we're gonna worship you tonight. We're gonna praise your name tonight, Lord, because we believe in you. We believe that you're here. We believe that you're alive. We believe that you are present, and we believe that you are responsive, God. We give you all the glory and all the honor. Can we start giving them some glory and some honor right now and some praise right now? In Jesus' name, amen.